Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. With me, as always, is Mr. Charles W. Chuck Bryant. How are you doing, Chuck? Well said. Good. Well, that's a good good word. It is for this show. This is Stuff You Should Know, and uh, actually this is a special edition of Stuff You Should Know. Indeed. Part one of a four-part series. Yes. Should I break it? <laughs> healthcare sure. Yeah. healthcare reform. Everyone seems to be really... Uh, uh, confused about what lies ahead in uh, the United States and our healthcare system. It's so confusing, Chuck, that I'm not even certain if healthcare is spelled as one word or two. I don't even. That's know pretty anymore. much the level that we're at in understanding. <laughs> no idea of, of healthcare, let alone healthcare reform. Right. right. So we're trying to figure this out, and uh, along with you guys, maybe you can learn something here. Yeah. So um, I guess let's kick it off. Let's get this ball rolling. Yeah, we're gonna we're not gonna talk about future plans. We're gonna talk about how it is today. Yeah, well, in this podcast, right? In this edition, in this edition, part one of four, part one of four. Uh, yeah, it's about the current healthcare system in the United States. And Chuck, have you uh, ever gone without health insurance? Oh yeah, yeah. How long? Oh man, I seem to think that uh, after my parents uh, mm-hmm. ceased, I think this is the familiar story for everyone, sure. sometime around after college yeah. till I got my first real job, which was at least seven or eight years later. Yeah. I think I did a decade. Yeah. Same same story. And the parents are always on you, you know, like, oh, you know, if you had an accident. And I was like, I'm, I'm invincible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And luckily it worked out. No Sa- same here. I don't think it works out quite so well for everybody. No, but yeah, sadly, you and I are, are, lead charmed lives. Uh, well, I guess we'll get to un- the uninsured soon enough. So, Chuck, let's go back to the, the beginning. 1920s in Texas, a guy named Justin Kimball uh, founded a company named Blue Cross. Still that's, around today, as I understand it. We, share, we understand because they have a, a floor right below us, I believe. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's where I've heard that name before. Yeah, we share a building. So he started uh, an insurance um, a program plan where um, women contributed, I think teachers specifically, Contributed fifty cents out of every paycheck uh-huh. um, toward their eventual maternity needs, right? So right. when they went to the hospital to have a baby, they were already prepaid. It's not really insurance prepaid plan, right? Good, great idea. But the time. there was something that came out of it that really gave birth to the insurance industry in the U.S. If you'll forgive the metaphor, sure. Um, not all of these teachers had kids. Bing, bing. So. You could actually make money yep. selling premiums, selling policies to people because not everybody's going to get cancer. Right. And that's how the whole system still works today. It's a gamble. Yep. You know, Ned Flanders once said on The Simpsons, actually it wasn't Ned, Maud Flanders was explaining Ned's <laughs> position. Right. That um, they don't have any kind of insurance because Ned considers it a form of gambling. <laughs> and it really is. On one side, you, the insured, are betting that at some point in time, some injury or illness is right. going to befall you that's going to cost more to treat than you've put in right. in monthly payments toward your policy. I love it. It is total gambling. The insurance company, on the other hand, is betting that you will be hit by a bus and die immediately. Something along those right. lines where you're not going to need any kind of care. Right. Or that you just lead a healthy life and uh, nothing catas- nothing happens to you. 
which may, is right. you know, not gonna clearly not gonna happen. I think the hit by the bus scenario is, is that the <laughs> the absolute best that can happen for a uh, insurance company. An insurance company, I yeah. Guess so, but so yeah, it's a form of gambling, and you're going head to head with the insurance company, and sometimes it pays off, sometimes it doesn't. Right. Uh, but for the most part, it 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 it's a pretty good system, basically speaking. Yeah, and you pay for peace of mind. A lot of times is what a lot of people say. You know? You sound like a shill. <laughs> I sound like I'm selling insurance. Yeah, exactly. I believe that was from Barton Fink. Was it? I yeah, John Goodman that said that he uh, sells peace of mind. Nice. Well, Chuck, let's fast forward a little bit. By the 1940s, uh-huh. um, companies had already begun offering uh, employer uh, assistance. Yeah. Insurance plans. Well, yeah, it's a great incentive to uh, get the the best and the brightest. Definitely, and actually, still is because of this business, which is a sector of U.S. society. Right. Uh, obviously, part of the economy, which is what I wanted to say. But business is a sector, just like you know, uh, population is a sector, government's a sector, that sure. kind of thing. Um, business said, "We're going to take the burden of healthcare on our shoulders." Mm, yeah, sort of. <laughs> In 1943, the IRS supported this and encouraged it with a, a ruling that said um, employers can pay for these programs, these plans for their employees yeah. out of pre-tax dollars, which right. makes the whole thing really attractive. And all of a sudden, the U.S. has what amounts to a state-sanctioned employer health care system. Right, and, which still thrives today. Which is good. Same pre-tax dollars, same deal with the IRS. The, the chances are good that you, if you have insurance in the U.S., mm-hmm. you have it through an employer. Yeah, uh, most people have insurance through uh, their company and their employer. Um, not as many people have the more expensive and harder to get uh, individual insurance. Yeah, I think 56% get it through their employer um, and 30% get it through the uh, government-run program. Medicaid or Medicare. Right. Medicaid and Medicare others. were created in, uh, I think, 1965 by the Johnson administration, right. LBJ. And um, the uh, S-CHIP is the other big one for children. And right. that's state-run, like Medicaid. Medicare is for the elderly and the chronically disabled yes. and Did not peculiarly – um, people with, with kidney failure. Yeah, renal failure. Yeah. Uh, Medicaid, as I said, it's state run, um, is for other people with disabilities. Right. The poor. Who can't afford it. And, uh, pregnant women. Right. And then S-CHIP is for kids. Yes. And that is, uh, covers uninsured children under the age of 19 whose families earn up to 36200 per year. At you with the stat. I've got a lot of stats. Today. I was going to say, I sense <laughs> that that's the first of many. Right. And then, actually, there was one more that I don't know if you knew about, uh, the high-risk health insurance pools. And these yeah. are people that have uh, pre-existing conditions that normally would not be able to get insurance at all. And they what they do is they group these people together, same concept as, as a employee, employee-based deal. Those are the ones you see on little 99-cent signs on the side of the road. Right. <laughs> like, need insurance kind of thing. Yeah. They, you just get lumped together. Right. Um. So yeah, there's the, you just pointed out one um, type of insurance, which is group insurance. Most employer plans, probably all employer plans, um, are group insurance. Yeah, and it right. works because it is a group. Because you're, uh, and these are good because you usually don't have to uh, fill out the big questionnaire about your right. eating habits and your smoking habits. Yeah. And um, there's no physical exam. Exactly. And pretty much anybody who wants to take part can contribute and be insured. Right. 
Any employee, I should say, and usually their family, kids, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, a very small portion of the uh, U.S. population has um, individual plans. And right. one of the reasons why is because you have to go through a rigorous screening process. It's not cheap. If you are found to have a pre-existing condition, um, you, you can be denied insurance. Very easily. I imagine pretty heartbreaking. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's really expensive. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very, it's an expensive, um, proposition. Um, whether you're an employer or an individual. Sure. And increasingly an employee. Right. So we'll get to that in a minute. What are some of the types of, uh, insurance plans that are out there in the U.S. today? There's pretty much two, b- Umbrellas, right? As yeah. far as models go, I would say so. The, I think you're talking about the uh, FFS, the fee for service model, and then the managed care model. You which, know me so well. I know. Which uh, under the managed care is when you hear about HMOs and PPOs and POS, and uh, that those are all managed care. Yeah. The big, the the I guess the um, main characteristic of fee for service is, and this is the original. Model for insurance, yeah, indemnity insurance. I yeah, is yeah. Name for you it. you uh, you pay your monthly premium, mm-hmm. and uh, you you're insured. You come down with a cold, you go to the doctor. Sure, the doctor cures you. He gives you a coke and says, uh, "Drink this, and you'll be fine." Right, and smoke the cigarette. Right, yeah. <laughs> this is the 1940s. The 50s, yeah, um, and uh, you pay the doctor. You file some paperwork. Uh-huh. Your insurance company reimburses you, and you go along your merry way, continuing. Paying your monthly premiums again. Right. This is kind of the old school model, like what our grandparents probably had. Right. And then I think in the 80s, the HMOs came about. Managed care became um, much more popular yeah. than the FFS model. And actually, there's some um, plans that kind of combine the two. But with managed care, um, with fee-for-service, the the emphasis is on treatment. Right. With managed care, there's more emphasis on prevention, supposedly. Right. And that's where it really... That's one of the big sticking points with this whole mess that we have in this country is a lot of doctors and a lot of uh, uh, managed care still don't practice enough preventative care, they say. Right. So at the center of the managed care model is a primary physician. Right. Who's supposed to know you, know your family, uh-huh. know your history, sure. know that you eat more donuts than you should, right. know that you lied on your insurance form when you said you don't smoke, right, right. and is saying you're going to get diabetes, you're going to get right. lung cancer. Somebody who knows you, who you've seen and who who can you, you can trust. Right. To kind of guide and manage your health, right. right? They're kind of a dying breed, too, sadly. Definitely. And um, there's a good reason why, Chuck. You read that uh, CNN article? Yeah, that was distressing. Actually, it was an editorial by uh, Dr. Vance Harris, I believe. Yes. And uh, he basically gave a rundown of why the primary care physician is becoming a dinosaur, right? Yeah, it was pretty pretty depressing, actually. So he was saying that for every several thousand dollars, he saves the uh, health care industry. Right. By using his medical training to actually mm-hmm. make diagnoses rather than really expensive screenings like right. MRIs. Treatment. Treatment as opposed to procedure. Mm-hmm. He said that for every several thousand dollars he saves the industry, he makes 50 bucks. Yeah. 75 bucks. I know. Um, so he's there. So primary care physicians are not making a lot of money. What's more, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of issues surrounding malpractice. Right. On one hand, you can say, well, the very fact that there's uh, malpractice lawsuits out there and they often add up to astronomical 
uh, amounts of money being paid out to people who are found to have been the victim of malpractice. Right. Doctors are a little nervous about relying on their medical training to make a diagnosis when there's an MRI machine in the next room right. that they can just say, this is going to solve it one way or another. I'll right. know for a fact. And then at the very least, even if I miss it, I could say, well, the MRI manufacturer screwed up. Right. You know? Uh, there's a lot of passing the buck because of that, supposedly. But there's another way of looking at that, correct? Well, medical malpractice is, you hear a lot about um, doctors saying, that's driving us out of business. We can't afford the premiums. Um, we have too many patients. We have to squeeze in patients that that come in for, you know, because uh, the, they're worried. I know cyberchondria feeds into it. People read on the Internet. I've got reflux. I need to get a, uh, endo- endo- endoscopy mm-hmm. and they go in there and demand one. Which I mean, really, it's, it's there. It's your right. Sure. You're a patient and you want to make sure that you yeah. have a healthy body. It's tricky business though. It, it is because there, what did you call it? Cyberchondria? Yeah. Excellent. It's, uh, an argument that's often used against, uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, advertising on television. Right. It, you get the impression that they are, educating the consumer to say, hey, here's the words you use when you talk to your doctor right. to get our pill. Yep. You know, I mean, how, how much of an effect has that had on um, over prescription? I'm sure a bunch. And there's uh, there's so much information out there now. That's the first thing I do. I diagnose myself on the Internet all the time. And I know a lot of people do, do that. Do you really? Oh, yeah, man. What's you, what do you have? Oh, I've got uh, reflux. Do and, you? Uh, uh-huh. Big time. You're not much of a complainer, Chuck. Ah, oh, shut up. You were no, saying really. I had no idea you had <laughs> reflux. I got bad reflux, dude. Let's take it back to. Uh... Can we talk about malpractice again, real quick? Oh, I, yeah. I do have a, a study. Please. Um, so you hear a lot about how how those costs are driving doctors out of business, and I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just going to throw the study out. The uh, Americans for Insurance Reform. Uh, they are a coalition made up of Consumer Federation of America, uh, ConsumerWatchdog.org, and a hundred other public interest groups. They released a study um, this week, actually, that found that uh, malpractice premiums are down and at the lowest they've been in 30 years. Um, malpractice claims are down 45% since 2000. Huh. And in states where uh, the states have limited the uh, consumer's ability to sue for malpractice, yeah. premiums are about the same as in other states. Really? So I'm not saying they're not paying a lot and it's not putting a dent, but they, they do say that... Uh, Malpractice claims only constitute one fifth of one percent of annual health care costs in the United States. So that's kind of an obsolete argument these days. Well, it may be a little overblown. I mean, of course, tell the doctor that that has to pay a lot of money. But um, right. I, from what I read, it, it's not the central problem, like some people say. Like it needs reform. It needs to be controlled by the government. Uh, who knows? Okay. I'm just here to report the, the facts. And you did an excellent job of <laughs> Thanks. it. Thanks. Let's go back to um, talking about where you get your insurance, right? Yes. We talked about uh, employer-based plans. Uh-huh. Uh, we talked about people who get the, the their insurance individually. Right. People who get it from the state. Um, and then there's another group known as the uninsured. Yeah, and this is where it gets really hinky. The number of the uninsured is uh, kind of all over the map right now. Well, yeah, and also it's one of the central foci of um, the insurance or health care reform debates. Well, it has that to there's be. 45, actually, as far as August 2009 uh, Census Bureau figures, 45.6 million uninsured Americans. Right. And that 
if you are a person who believes that healthcare is a human right, mm-hmm. you think that these people should be covered in some form or fashion, right? Right. And they're really nitpicking this number because uh, the, this number, the number of uninsured, is largely what a lot of the, the financing is going to be based on. Yeah. Well, they're it, trying to project like a decade into the future. Uh-huh. And if they don't get that number right, you know, the money doesn't work out, then that's when you're really screwed. Well, sure. Um, you were saying that not everybody's on the same page with not who the uninsured are, how many there are. Um, there's a guy named Michael D. Tanner of the Cato Institute. And he pointed out that about- Our favorite think tank, right? Uh, actually, I'm more of a Brookings Institute fan. Oh, man. He's, Cato's pretty good. used to be all about Cato. I, I was. I've, 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 I'm still am, I, but I like Brookings these days. You've changed. <laughs> so Tanner's, Tanner points out that, um, about 12 million of the, the 45.6 million people who are uninsured in the U.S. Yeah. Um, are eligible for Medicaid or S-CHIP. They just haven't signed up. True. Well, maybe true. It's a really good point. Yeah. He also points out that if they ever go in for treatment, that should pop up um, in in whatever patient data that the administrator takes in, and they'll be automatically enrolled in whatever program suits them. Right. Right? So that takes care of $12 million. Uh, one of the ones I don't necessarily agree with, uh, and I think people who think that healthcare is a universal human right would disagree with very much, is he points out that about 10 million of these people who are uninsured in America aren't Americans. Right. It's high as 15. Who know, it depends on, uh, when you start looking at these numbers, I started looking around, there, people are throwing all kinds oh, yeah. of numbers around. Everybody's got a number for it's this. It's because it's hard to count and account for these people. Yeah. Uh, they're generally illegal immigrants aren't going to step forward and say, you know, count me on your report. Right. So that's one reason. But he, uh, Tanner also makes one last point that, um, you and I are kind of anomalies, Chuck, and having gone several years without insurance when we were younger men. Right. Uh, that about 50% of the uninsured in the U.S., uh, go six months or less without insurance. So right. really this 45.6 million Americans, even if the number remains the same, who makes up this population is changing constantly. Right. It's a snapshot, basically. Right. I saw as one person put it in one of the articles you sent me. So, yeah, exactly how many uninsured people there are and who they are is kind of a, a big part of this debate about whether, you know, health care needs reform. Actually, let me let me correct myself. I haven't run across anybody who says that health care doesn't need reforming. Have you? No. No. Everybody agrees that there's something wrong that with it. That it's broken and... The it, World Health Organization would probably agree with that well, study. Well, hold on. First, let's talk about some of the different arguments. There's some people who say that public health care is nothing more than just a, a, a weak part of the American welfare state, and why should my taxes pay for some other guy's right. um, health insurance when I'm paying through the nose? Right. Um, the uh, You could say that uh, competition might ease this. Right. This, you know, um, giving people vouchers to mm-hmm. go buy their own insurance might make them a little more penny wise, right? Uh, with how they spend their money. Um, really, ultimately, what seems to be agreed upon by everybody is that the American healthcare system is too expensive for what it provides, big time. So let's talk about this. You mentioned the World Health Organization. This was huge. And this this still, the study was from 2000. Yeah. And uh, it remains a real um, piece of ammunition that's used 
many different ways in the debate on health care reform. Yeah, it was a groundbreaking study. And uh, like you said, we are the most expensive. We spend more money on health care than anyone in the world. We spend 16, in 2008, we spent 16.6% of our GDP on health care. Wow. Not just government spending, but just across the board. Jeez. 16.6 of the market, 16.6% of the market value of the United States in that that year was spent just on health care. That's more than defense, buddy. I know. So, dude, we were in Iraq and Afghanistan <laughs> at that time. If if you give me a number like that, I would say in response, Josh, that of the 191 countries they studied, then that probably means that we're at the top of the list. Then for what you get for your dollar, you would think we should be since we have the most expensive and technologically sophisticated right. healthcare system or top in five. the world. Top ten, I, re- dude, I, I would say top across top twenty one. at least. You would think. What, oh, where we should be? Yeah, I mean, I'm, oh, I'm going to go... Top five, easy. Yeah, but I'm going to give you some leeway and say top ten. Okay, how, what is it really? 30, where did we rank? 37. 37th. In the world. Out of 191 countries. Yes. You know who is just above us? Costa Rica. Awesome. You know who is just below us? Who? Slovenia. Wow. Yeah. That's where the U.S. ranks. If Nothing this were the Olympics, Costa Rica. we would be ashamed. Nothing against Slovenia. Right. But, yeah, since we have the most expensive healthcare system in the entire world on the planet, we should, by proxy, have the best healthcare system as rated by the World Health Organization. You want to hear something else, Chilling? I do. Uh, Americans' life expectancy is lower than Canada, half of the Caribbean, including Puerto Rico and Cuba, mm-hmm. uh, Chile, all of Western Europe, some of Eastern Europe, Israel, Jordan, Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. Our life expectancy is lower than all of those countries. Wow. And I'm not necessarily saying that definitely means that their healthcare system is so much better, but it, it probably lends itself to, to that argument. I know the study you're referring, or the article you're referring to, Chuck, and, um, it references a study from the New England Journal of Medicine from about 10 years ago that showed that the average black man in Harlem was less likely to reach age 65 than a man in Bangladesh. That is messed up. That's not supposed to be. No. No. So, not when you're spending the kind of, and we're not saying because America is so much better, it's because we spend the kind of money we spend. Right. And you expect better results. That's one thing that a lot of people have agreed on. Um, the, um, the, the other point to this is, you know, by the way, we spent $2.4 trillion in 2008 on health care, right? Health care spending and costs continue to increase, but uh, as someone else pointed out, it, in 1996, our mortality rate flattened. It hasn't gotten better since then. Right. So in short, the U.S. is not getting enough bang for its buck as far as its health care system. We're not goes. getting healthier, but we're certainly spending more money. What's going on? Well, I mean, there's a, geez, there's a lot of reasons. I know one thing a lot of people point at is uh, the aging baby boomers and out the age where they need a lot of care in the hospitals and by doctors. Uh, there are fewer and fewer doctors and nurses, so uh, they're not getting as good a care. And there's more, um, I think they just call them medical errors in the article I read because of understaffing. That's one reason. You're, what you're talking about could actually be considered symptoms. And we should probably True. say... Just for COA, that if you put Jerry and Matt in here, mm-hmm. you, you would get a totally different podcast with all the same research. Right. It, it, there are so many ways of looking at this issue that all you and I can do here, Chuck, is try to get to the central focus of it. Right. Without, you know, leaning into partisan politics or anything like right, that. Right, right. 
it seems to me from what I, I saw come up time and time again from uh, sources on both the left and the right, pro-business, pro-labor, mm-hmm. is that the American healthcare system is too sophisticated. It's too advanced. Interesting. And patients have too much access to it. Right. Too much, you could say, frivolous access to it. So that MRI scan we were talking about. Right, right. The ones that, that the patient might demand. Right. The patient demands it because that money that goes toward your employer-based insurance uh-huh. policy comes out of your paycheck. Yeah, yeah. Right? And when when So right there, this is money you haven't even seen. It comes out before it hit your, your paycheck right, direct right. deposited into your account, right? Secondly, it's relatively cheap. And when you go to the doctor, you're not actually shelling out money. No, your copay. Right. So you have re- no real incentive to be um, cheap. What was the Simpsons uh, episode you were talking about? So you remember? Do you remember the one where uh-huh. uh, they, they uh, Homer and Lisa go t- into isolation tanks? Right, right. Um, which, by the way, I did recently, and it was cool. I know. Um, and Homer's isolation tank is repossessed while he's in there. Right. And one of the laborers who's uh, repossessing this thing uh, tells the other one to lift with his knees. And the other guy goes, screw it, I've got health insurance. Right. And that's kind of the attitude some people take is, I'm paying for this, I'm going to get my money's worth out of it. Exactly. So i got some heartburn, I'm going to go uh, demand the uh, the camera down the throat instead of trying to treat it and see if or not eat chocolate and red wine right before well, you that, go to bed. Well, that's the other thing that it betrays is that we aren't taking responsibility for our own health. As nope. Americans, we don't. And that's where it has to start, buddy. Definitely. And part of that is putting that focus back on prevention again right. rather than treatment. Because consider this. If you have a an advanced disease, uh-huh. how much more rigorous uh, is your treatment going to be? How many more doctor's visits does that entail? How many more um, scans does that, MRI scans right. does that entail? How much more far- medication? Right. And don't get me started on the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, that's a different podcast. Um, how much more... Um, Time and effort mm-hmm. and just cost is it going to take to treat an advanced stage disease than it's going to be to prevent it right. or treat it early on. Exactly. So like uh, when they recommend at, uh, at, I think, 40 or so for women to start getting your mammogram and for men to get the old uh, how's your father treatment from your doctor. Yeah. These kind of things. People, poor dad. People avoid this stuff. And then all of a sudden you have, like you said, Holy cow, I've got a tumor that's in an advanced stage because yep. I haven't taken care of myself and I haven't done the regular checkups like I need to. And uh, it costs a lot more. So th- this infrastructure that we're talking about, the health system infrastructure, right. it keeps growing and growing. Uh, it, it, it costs a lot to manufacture an MRI mas- machine. And sure. I, keep, I keep using that, but it's just such an easy example. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as a result of just not just that MRI machine, but all of these different external factors and possibly corporate greed, um, from 2004 to 2009, the average cost on healthcare premiums increased four times faster than the average wage in the U.S. I know. So all of a sudden, healthcare is just getting more and more and more expensive, and not just for you or me, Chuck. Um, we our premium from 1999 to 2009, our the employee contribution went from uh, an average of $1,543 to $3,354. Right. 
that's just our contribution. This isn't including employers' contributions, sure. which is affecting their bottom line. And as healthcare costs rise, they're losing a competitive edge mm-hmm. in the global market, in well, an increasingly globalized world. And all businesses have budgets. They work on budgets. That also might affect the uh, raise you might or might not get because of the, the budget and how much they're having to spend. I know my uh, father-in-law has a small business, and... Dude, he has a really small business. Like He only has a handful of employees, but he has a health insurance program. And one of the ladies that works with him is one of these people that does not take care of herself. She has like three or four surgeries a year, and it's driving him out of business, dude, this one lady. Yeah. And let me tell you something else. What? Buddy. (laughs) Uh, The World Health Organization estimates that between 19 and 24% of the total dollars spent on healthcare here is spent on administrative costs. Wow. Administrative costs. Yeah. And another reason that it's so expensive is uh, there's been a big shift, I don't know if you've noticed, in for-profit hospitals. Yeah. As opposed to the old non-profit model. The community model. And that's kind of helped drive up prices, too, so they say. Well, sure, not only that, but the uninsured drive up prices. Um, the, yeah. uh, the Medicaid and Medicare are notoriously terrible on paying out um, billing to physicians. Uh, hospitals have started to use something called balance billing where they um, start billing patients for procedures they didn't know they weren't covered for, and the insurance company is refusing to pay, and all of a sudden you've got a collection agent all over you because the hospital didn't say, oh, by the way, this doctor right here who uh, you're you're about to see is out of your network, so you're going to have to pay for him out of pocket. There's just – there's we have big problems here. Yeah. No kidding. (laughs) So, Chuck, how do we solve this? I have no idea. Other people do. (laughs) Thank heavens for that. Well, one of those people is uh, a man named Mr. Barack Obama. You Uh may know him as President Obama. Sure. He's got a plan for health care reform, and uh, we're going to cover that in the next installment of the podcast, Barack Obama's health care reform plan, Soup to Nuts. Yes. But, again, this is kind of a weighty topic, and we're going to need some help, so... We're going to recruit Molly Edmonds, right? Molly Edmonds of uh, Stuff Mom Never Told You, yep. popular sister podcast, right? and all our, our uh, healthcare writer. Well, yeah, she's been completely submerged in healthcare for the last three weeks. Health in general. She's our health writer. She is, but she's been uh, studiously studying uh, healthcare reform. So she's going to come in for the next few uh, podcasts to help us sort through things. Good. We can rely on her a little bit. And we also spoke to uh, Dr. Michael Royson who is the chief uh, wellness officer of the Cleveland Clinic. Yes. And more famously known as co-author of the You, the Owner's Manual series of books. With Dr. We got him on the phone. Yeah. He was awesome. So it's going to be like a whiz-bang, super big healthcare reform podcast, and hopefully by the end you will know as much as Molly Edmonds, which is substantial. So stay tuned for the second episode, which will be out in a week. And in the meanwhile, uh, you can go to HowStuffWorks.com, type in healthcare in our handy search bar, and you're going to find a slew of really thoroughly researched and well-written articles by Molly Edmonds. And if you uh, want to send us an email about healthcare or anything else, you can shoot that to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. Perfect. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?